This episode is brought to you by Affordable Drill Towers. Founded in 2016 by our good friend Steve Sanguidoce, a retired Houston, Texas firefighter, the Affordable Drill Tower was designed and built with functionality and versatility in mind for any training ground. As a standalone training tower and add-on to an existing burn building or connect setup, the Affordable Drill Tower packs a massive punch at an affordable price tag. With over 50 towers across the country, from Massachusetts to California, Montana to Texas, professionally engineered, NFPA and ISO compliant, the Affordable Drill Towers brings the versatility to your training ground. From Main Street USA, the small town fire company in their back parking lot, to the training grounds of the largest metropolitan fire academy, the Affordable Drill Tower fits the bill for price and functionality. Check them out at AffordableDrillTowers.com. And two things I like to talk about also when talking about our friends over at Affordable Drill Towers. One, their customized training program. They have the ability to bring some of the best talent from across the country to your home turf after the install of the Affordable Drill Tower. Designing a customized training program for you and your department, Steve will facilitate some of the biggest and brightest names of the American Fire Service to come in and work with you and your department. And secondly, and I think most important, is Steve's belief in need over greed. The affordable drill tower company gives back to not-for-profits that support organizations in the American Fire Service. Organizations such as the Joey D Foundation, which is near and dear to Steve Sanguidoche's heart, as well as many other not-for-profits that he takes a part of. He takes great pride in providing funding for organizations that push this job forward. So check them out. Steve and Dennis over at Affordable Drill Towers. Send them an email at info at affordabledrilltowers.com. Check them out on social media. And their YouTube page is kicking butt with great information, training nuggets, and information about their towers. So check them out, Affordable Drill Towers, and let them know Jeremy over at National Fire Radio sent you. This episode's brought to you by Ridgeway Leatherworks. Ridgeway Leatherworks is a firefighter-owned and operated business as well as a family-run business, and that's what I love about it. Rob and his family are passionate about their customer service and the quality product and craftsmanship they put out for the emergency services. Rob's been on the show. We've been to his his business. We've seen them in action. I've even tried to hand-paint radio straps. I promise you, it is not as easy as what the final outcome looks like. The product is so good, it's so clean and crisp, and yet, man, it takes that steady hand. Rob's become a near and dear friend of our podcast, and you hear that over and over when we talk about our sponsors, that they're friends, supporters, and that's what this networking community is all about, is supporting one another. Ridgeway Leatherworks, Rob Meyer, crushing it. Quality and craftsmanship is number one. Customer service is right there with it. From custom radio straps, universal radio holsters, chin straps, flashlight holders, anti-sway straps, and locker tags made out of leather, there's plenty of opportunity along the way when you deal with Ridgeway Leatherworks. So check them out at RidgewayLeatherworks.com. Find them on social media, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. And tell Rob you heard about him on the National Fire Radio platform and give them a little pluck and tell them keep up the good work we need to support our firefighter owned businesses and especially family run businesses where his two daughters and his wife help out day in and day out along with his other employees so again ridgeway leatherworks check them out at ridgewayleatherworks.com and find them on all your social media channels happy 
Tuesday, everybody, and welcome to episode 32 of the Size Up by National Fire Radio. And as I say at all these beginnings, if you're listening, I like Happy Tuesday. Happy Tuesday may be my new like go-to line because these always come out on Tuesday. It's one thing we have not, <laughs> Jeremy said, and I haven't messed up yet, is that the Size Up is always the Tuesday show. So we got that much going for us. So I could probably say Happy Tuesday but see, then I feel stupid because you could be listening on a Wednesday or a Saturday or whatever day. And you're like, why is he telling me happy Tuesday? And then if you're like me and do a job like I do, where you never know what day of the week it is, especially in the summertime when your kids don't have school, at least with school, I feel like I know what day of the week it is sort of because I know when the weekend is because they don't have to go to school. Um, but anyway, enough about me. I have an amazing guest today who I, I secret of podcast pip is I, I put out a little pre-show questionnaire just to get some some fun facts about my guests and, and some info. And my guest today answered one of my questions with this humongous paragraph that most people ask, answer that question with like one or two words. And I was like, this is going to be a good one. So Firefighter O, Ofer from Trauma Pack and uh, Rancho Cucamonga, California, correct? How are you today? Doing great. Thank you for having me, Pip. No, man, it's, it's really my pleasure here, especially because, you know, our good friends at Modus, you know, suggested when I had put out like, hey, I'm, I'm looking for some guests here. They were like, you got to get Ofer from Trauma Pack. And I'm like, who is that? And then they, they led me to you when we talked and you were like, you and I have met. And I was like, oh, <laughs> such a fail when you forget you've met someone. I feel so bad. Uh, it happens, I'm sure, uh, to a lot of people like you that, uh, you know, you get out there and interact with so many. So it's all good. And happens. it just happened to me today on uh, answering one of the work emails. So it's all good. <laughs> You're like, because it's hard too, because, you know, we talked about paying it forward and, and trying to help other people. And it's like one of those things. And then when you and I talked a little bit about when we met, I kind of remembered it a little bit. But again, it was at a trade show and a lot of trade shows, man, they just blend together right after so long. Um and it gets to be that our interaction was important. And then I'm like, man, our interaction was important. And I just can't nail it down to when it was. Right. It's all good. Looking forward, though. Uh, yeah, letting this go. You were asking about that paragraph. And to me, it's like there's so much to what we do, right? Whether it's the fire service or entrepreneurship. And that's why I was saying, hey, we'll, we'll go organic to wherever this takes us. Because um, I've made a lot of mistakes. I'm still going to make a lot of mistakes like we all do. But my goal is to just share, share with others what I've learned, pay it forward and make the next guy better. Um, so that way we can all both as a profession and as just human beings get better. You know, that that sharing topic, you know, I don't think I've really talked about that on, on any of these podcasts yet or specifically, but, you know, it's when when people feel like they have this knowledge and they have to keep it all to themselves, because if they shared it, then someone else may know more than them. Right. You ever come across people like that? I know, I know in the fire service, I for sure have, but. Well, if you look about, uh, think about like firehouse gossip, right? Someone tells you a secret, Hey, this guy's going to get promoted or, Hey, we're going to do this. You feel like you have to go share that with someone, right? Um, no secrets in the firehouse. For there really is no tell, tell a friend, tell a firefighter, right? Um, um, but what about like, if you learn something new, why don't we take that same energy? Like if you like tech rescue, you learn a new knot that's like this amazing knot that is so functional. What's the point of keeping it to yourself? Why not share the knot? Why not share the knowledge, the tactic? And I think that's where we kind of failed ourselves in, in our industry originally is 
everybody wants to keep information. And I think you get that because of the culture of promotions. And there's cer certain agencies where, hey, it's you kind of everything is isolated as far as knowledge because you want to beat out the next guy where I was blessed to be in a culture where we do a promotional academy for, let's just say, for a company officer. There's an academy. There's an academy for engineers. Well, why not have an, uh, just that culture of, hey, let's all make ourselves better. And then the right guy will or gal will get promoted based on er everything else. But why 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 uh, hoard information that can make us better and help the community and help each other? Yeah, I mean, th that is exactly the answer. Don't hoard that information because the way that I look at it, going back to the tech rescue phase of it and, and that knot is, look, I know how to tie that knot, right? But uh, so I'm on the, conf we're a confined space rescue team, right? And I being my uh, statuist self, I'm not necessarily the person that's going to be tying knots in a confined space rescue, right? I'm the guy who's getting in the harness and going in the hole. Let's just call it what it is. I want those dudes tying the knots to know every knot I know and more because those are the knots that are going to keep me safe. So why am I not going to share that knowledge with them, you know, on any of these ideas? Exactly. So this, this, this uh, I like this, I've never heard of this before, this like academy that you have for officers and or promotion there where you're at. Is it just your department or is it a regionalized thing? You know, our region's pretty progressive with when it comes to mentorship and succession planning, whether it's for firefighters, engineers, captains, chief officers. So in my agency, for example, there's a um, promotional academy for every rank you want to go to, to for the next step. So obviously there's a the rookie academy, but we have an academy for engineers. We have an academy for captains and battalion chiefs. Um, and you really start with having the fire chief come and talk, give you the leader's intent. And what a better way to hear from the fire chief, giving you a leader's intent of, hey, this is the expectation. This is what I expect of, of future leaders in this organization. And I have your back if you mess up. If I know that your intent is right, I have your back. And then giving kind of that setting the tone for that next, uh, for that academy or for that, um, you know, that one or two weeks that you're learning. So I think that's great because that just creates that culture of always training, always wanting to get better, regardless of the discipline, whether it's for fire ground, whether it's for leadership or any type of specialty in the fire service. I think having those uh, academies really helps set the, the tone, especially as we see now, I don't know about you, but we have um, we looked at this picture at the at the TV room the other day, and about half of the department is no longer there from this picture that we took like eight years ago. Yeah, and I'm sure that's common around our industry. Well, with that, it's not there's just the people that left, but all that knowledge is left, and we start taking for granted the things that we already forgot that we learned. That our new guys are not even learning it. So, what a better uh, culture to create by teaching our guys. And, you know, yeah, it's reinforcing the basics, but also we take for granted what we know. And I, I feel like I'm in a unique spot in my career. I've been on full time now. This is my 18th year. We're kind of like, oh, you're looking around. You're like, man, I'm I'm starting to be that that older guy that people are looking up to for what are we doing on the fire ground? What are we doing culturally to handle these, whether it's a political situation in the firehouse, whether it's um, culture and whether it's obviously, you know, uh, tactics and, and strategy. So we have to step up um, and we're kind of that middle management, right? Um, I'm studying still to be a, a company officer. I'm a, I'm an engineer right now on a truck, very busy truck company. Um, 
we run a lot of calls in a busy house. We have 10 guys at our house. That's for us. That's, that's considered a big house. And, um, I tell you, we're seeing a lot of different people coming in, different backgrounds where our interview process is so um, strenuous as far as picking the right people. And then we're so critical when we're, we're quick to be on these folks if they're not doing something right. And I said, hold on, like, look at our people. We're, we're the ones, first of all, interviewing them. We're the ones that are handpicking them and we send them up the chain to the chief's interview. Let's give these guys the benefit of the doubt that they are the cream of the crop, whether you're in Southern California or East Coast. People that are coming to your door are the people that want to be there. Let's give them the time of day and mentor them um, correctly. And, and I think the people we were, were teaching today, there's a little different dynamics than what it was when at least I started, right? It was, hey, these are what you got to learn, get to it. Um, and, and that we kind of had to do a lot on our own. We did have some mentorship. But I think this new generation of and I don't want to equate it to the social media, but there's so easy to get information and to get feedback and response to things. Um, it's that instant gratification. Well, that is the people that we're hiring. They want to instantly be accepted into the culture. They want instantly know everything that you know and to be this dialed firefighter on the fire ground, but it just takes time. So how do we, as that middle management help mentor them. And, and we have to be patient and we have to understand that they look at us and they want everything that we have, whether it's, you know, we already have now the, I can't imagine trying to buy a house now in this economy. I look at our folks just around where I live, the average home is like seven, $800,000. And you have these starting firefighters, how are they supposed to buy a house, right? It's, it's not realistic. So how do we help to mentor them financially to make decisions to how to save money, how to, make decisions to to have a good marriage you know all these things were looked up to to do and and if you're not ready to tackle that i think as a kind of middle management and of course upper management or leadership like a captain then you're not really ready to to, to lead i think in our industry yeah you may be a good good strategy and tactics on the fire ground it's just so little of what we do in the fire service you really have to be a a, a father figure a mentor in the firehouse so that when those other difficult calls come in, that that's the easy, that's the cream of the, that's the easy to me. That's the icing on that's the top. The part. I can say that in my captainship and currently the acting DC, like it, the calls are the, the parts that are, are not so hard. I mean, there's hard calls for sure, but like it's, it's all the other things that you spoke about. And I know I'm right in there with you. So I have 20 years on, and I know that, you know, 20 years ago when I started, it was very different for me than it is for the folks that are starting now. And one of the things that I've kind of adapted to, to, to try to make myself better at the job that I'm doing is I look at the captains that I had and the way they treated me. And it's very differently different than the way I treat the folks that I have now. But then I look at, well, what about them 20 years before that, when they were the rookie firefighter and the captains that they had, and how they were treated, and how differently they treated me, and now again, how differently I'm treating these folks, because the evolution is always happening. It's just that we as the old dudes, and, and listen, there's definitely were some old guys that did not evolve 20 years ago, and definitely some, some guys around my age that haven't evolved now. But I think that's a big part, is we have to kind of almost meet in the middle, and, and I agree with you with that it's not social media, it's not your phone, I mean, we're all on our, I hate it, I hate the line I hear. 
like these young firefighters are just on their phones all the time. And then I look around and I'm like, bro, you got 27 years on and you're sitting on your phone all day. Like it, it doesn't make a difference. It's, it's the way life is now. Right. And I think you, the, the issue is you don't want people to not be engaged, but the reality is you can be very engaged with technology and I allow that to be a tool. Um, and that's, the, that's the issue. So I, 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 I try to make sure our guys are engaged and they know that we care about them. Um, but at, at the end of the day, um, yeah, it, technology is a tool and we should be using it. And that's, that's the bottom line. Yeah, there, there's so many things you can learn. Like, I love it when guys are like, did you see this video of the way these guys stretch this line? Like, check it out. And they'll show me. And I'm like, no, I didn't see that one. Um, right. Because again, that's just something that I could have never known how you fought fires in Rancho Cucamonga here in New Jersey. 20 years ago, but right now I can probably see everything you guys are doing in one way or another on social media somewhere and be like, wow, that may work for us. I mean, I, I can tell you uh, the West Coast truck style of doing things is not going to work where I work in New Brunswick. We're not opening every roof. We're not, you know, right. walking on every roof. We're not making multiple cuts on every roof. It's just the way things are set up. But right. I can learn stuff from watching your videos online to be like, wow, that is a really good idea how to move that way or to how to practice with the saw when you're not cutting and they do the pretend cuts, you know, that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. It's just great knowledge that's out there. Yeah, I agree. And and that's that's one of the cool parts of, of my job. I get to travel a lot, uh, whether it's for meetings and conferences or teaching and just interacting with other colleagues around the country, seeing how they do things. But at the end of the day, we all have the same issues and and I'll I'll be blunt and I'll say the number one risk to the fire service I think is us is ourselves and if we don't um, manage ourselves if we don't hold each other accountable uh, whether it's for how we I mean look at how well the fire service has done um, con, you know uh, consecutively um, uh, compared to it and I'll say to compared to law enforcement right you had one bad significant event in law enforcement a few years ago that was caught on video and it threw our whole country into this, you know, uh, disaster with protests and riots and anyone grouped with law enforcement at the time was, was hated, you know, that were really in the fire service were one bad call away from that happening to us. And we, if we think we're immune to that, we're crazy. Um, you, you, you we just need to teach our young guys that teach our older guys that, just remember that we have to hold each other accountable and we're our own biggest enemy, like most professions are. And that's really what we should be focusing on maintaining is a, a healthy culture of serving and serving the public. The day we forget that we're here to serve, we've lost all focus of, of our why in the fire service. I, I'm guessing you've read Chief Brunacini then and his customer service uh, mentality for the fire service if you're with, yeah. with the way you're going, right? Because that is a huge part of it. And it's something that has to almost be taught and expressed to everyone because it's not something you think about when you go into this. You know, when you're that young firefighter, you know, you're just excited putting fire out and you're not really thinking about the folks' belongings that are in the house or, you know, some folks like you, even you were saying today about not even being able to buy a house, you know, because of the skyrocketing prices of houses. And sometimes you have some folks in your area that that room that was next to the fire room that didn't burn, but some things got damaged. That's all those folks have is what's in that room. And those are those customer service moments that you really have to be able to, to, to be on your A game for, I feel like, and be taught right. about. Yeah. And you know, it, it's for us, honestly, we, um, 
we're known as a department that I don't want to say that doesn't um, fire people, but we we work our butts off to train people. But the moment that we see that you are not mentally geared for customer service and you're not there for the right reason or in serving, I think that's game over. So, um, and I and I think we should all be doing that in the fire service as far as um, if you're not in the mindset of treating people the way they deserve to be treated, everything else doesn't matter. You could be the best at, you know, hose manipulation and all that. It really doesn't matter because what we do is so much more than that. And you can train anyone to, uh, not to diminish what we do, but you can train anyone that's trainable how to fight a fire. But, you know, leaving a cardiac arrest and um, taking care of all the little things and making sure the family is aware of what happened and they have, whether it was successful or not, that they have the proper closure and the way they're you're starting that healing process for them. That's what our industry is about. It's a, kind of a whole approach to to dealing with grief, to dealing with disasters, to dealing with trauma, taking care of the community, and then taking care of, of ourselves, of course. And I know that's something you've been huge in, so I applaud you for that. But that's something we all need to be uh, on top of our game. Yeah, it's a, it's that crew integrity, crew integrity, right? That isn't just counting, looking at the fire and counting around like I have one, two, three, four with me. I have one, two, three, four with me. That's that. Hey, bro, why did you say that out loud on that EMS call? You know, like if if I don't say that to one of my guys, or they don't say it to me even, because listen, I'm not Mister Perfect, like you you kind of said before, right? Everybody makes mistakes. Sometimes you don't even realize it. If you don't have the ability to talk to your fellow coworkers or whomever you're with on that rig about something like that, well, you have no crew integrity or even personal integrity, you know, because it could be, I had a bad day or it could be, oh, I didn't realize that, you know, like I didn't realize, cause I know I've been there more often on EMS calls. You know, you don't realize sometimes some of the things that are happening, you right. know, um, or when you have that four person engine company, you're on an EMS call and you have someone who like takes the family to another room you know, or sees the person's small child there and starts playing with them. So they're not paying attention to the scene that's happening there. Um, and it's just those little things that go into that customer service. You know, I think sometimes it gets a little bit uh, misconstrued that that's going to change our job or change our aggressiveness or whatever you want to call it to be. And it's really not. It's the things that make us us. Yeah. So I say we should aggressively be passionate and aggressively care. So that's that's one way. I like that. I like a, a aggressively passionate, maybe the name of this podcast, which I say all the time when I find a good name, but that's it, right? Because that passion is why you started this. It's when you tell people, when people say like, oh, why don't forget why you became a firefighter, you know, don't lose that passion and, and you're going to lose it at some point in your career. It's just, I, you you can't be full on full bore for uh, ever, I guess hard. is a good way to put it, right? Yeah. That, and that's, what's fun is I think I still feel as excited and am I going to lie and say maybe a two in the morning call is the same? So we're not going to bullshit anyone. But I I still feel as excited going on. You know, it's going to be a good call just as I did when I was 14. And uh, that's the beauty of it is it's sometimes you got to like pinch yourself and go, well, I'm I'm doing the job I love. And that's there's nothing better than that. And you look around and see how many people that don't love what they do. And I feel so I, I don't want to say I feel bad for them, but it's like, come on, you have to find what your passion may be. And it doesn't mean that what you decided to do at 17 when you went to college or went to wherever you went to, that you need to continue doing that. You know, you may have to find another another passion in life. Yeah. 
that's probably a, a topic that we don't uh, deal with a lot in the fire service because it's very rare that you have someone that realizes it's not for them after they got past so much hard work. Um, and we've seen it a little bit, but it's very rare. I mean, you go through a lot of guys come with us with paramedics school already and fire Academy and then our Academy, and then they're through probation. And it's, can you imagine just like sitting down with someone going, Hey, is this, you don't seem happy, but what a gift if you can help them find that early. Right. But it's probably uh, for the fire service, not very common, at least on the West coast, because people, you know, work really hard to get on here. Um, it's so competitive. Um, so I would imagine places that are super competitive like that, it must not be a common conversation. I think what we have more of, at least recently, you know, we just, my department just hired 30 people in three years, which is kind of a, a crazy number. But like you said, you can look at a picture from three years ago. That's because we're, we're about to have a retirement party for, I think, 34 people because oh. we kind of like just missed one pre 2020 and then we couldn't have one for a bit and then getting right. everyone organized. And this large group of people had retired in that time. Um, but with the folks that we're hiring more now are a little bit older folks and right. they've done other careers and they were like, this wasn't for me. I want to do this. You know what I mean? Right. So, you know, we see that with um, a good example is speaking up and, um, you know, when I got hired, it was like, you know, you have one mouth, two years, so you can listen way more than you speak and, you know, keep your mouth shut and, you know, do your job. Right. But we're hiring. I think I'm the least educated on my crew by far. I, my captain has a master's. My firefighter has a master's, um, was a, an accountant before um, he became and he was an Olympic, uh, you know, water pole. Like we have these people with amazing backgrounds. Yeah, yeah. Um, we have a guy that we hired was a, you know, a division on a, on a, on a significant fires before, uh, did like 17 years. So they come hired in the, you know, fire service and we expect them to be like a 21 year old that does not, hasn't been exposed to a lot. And when decisions have to start being made around or, or topics come up, it's the old traditional fire service is like, no, you wait for your turn to couple of years on a talk, but we're crazy to not want to tap into people that have so much to offer. And, I and when I said, I think we're our biggest enemy, this is where that comes into play. If we don't tap into our resources, then we're crazy, right? It's like being on a wildland fire and you have a guy that is maybe new to your crew, but has 10 years of wildland experience and can recognize hazards and can fall trees. And, you know, your strike team leader goes, is anyone here with experience? Um, everyone's looking at the captains and you can have a firefighter. So if you don't encourage that, you're doing yourself a disservice. So I think that's what we're seeing is we have a lot of great experience coming into the fire service from different backgrounds. And um, why not, why not, you know, tap into that brilliant mindset. That's one of my favorite questions I see. And now too, we've had so many rookies recently. We're, we're really used to asking these questions. I feel like at this point, but you know, as the get to know you phases and we're still in that we have three now, uh, on my shift for a little over a month or I don't know, under a month, wherever it is, but you're in that get to know you phase. But that to me is just as exciting because I want to know where these dudes' talents are. And I also necessarily don't want them volunteering them to me all the time, but I would like them, I would like to engage them. And then you even see them getting excited about being included when you're like, oh, so what'd you do before here? And, and 
this doesn't happen in, in New Jersey, I don't think ever. But if somebody was like, oh, I was on a Wildland Hotshot crew, I'd be like, oh, man, in my world, I'd be like, you know about chainsaws then. Let's go look at this one out front, right? Right. Um, but it's one of those things where you have that little bit of knowledge and dude, let's go, man, let's run with it. What can you teach me? And, and we, we even found, again, just when we started doing our own academies recently in the past six classes have been our own academies. And um, these kids came out a few academies ago and we were going to do like a firefighter survival drill. And it was something, it was like taking your pack off and going through a wall or something. And the training officer explained it. And like me and another kind of older hand standing there, I'm like, what are they talking about? I don't understand how to do this. Like we're whispering to each other. And it's like, who's going to go first? And I was like, he's going to, the rookie. And like somebody was like, oh, no, why you throw him under the bus? I was a lieutenant at the time. They're like, why'd you throw him under the bus, LT? And I'm like, because he did it in the fire academy and he's going to do it way better than all of us. So we're going to watch him and learn and then we'll be able to do it, you know, like, cause he knew, he knew how to do it from the Academy. You know, I love it. Yeah. Like, take and, that and that's where that opportunity is for, I think for us is to mentor them to go, Hey, I want to be the first one to volunteer. I want to be the first one working hardest one working last one working. Right. So I think that's where we focus. We should try to focus as how to mentor them, not how to just be better firefighters, but how to fit their mindset, their their expertise into you know molding it into being part of the fire service and that's that's where i see our role um going forward mentorship is such a big word in in the world now i think more than anything and again 20 years ago i'm not really sure mentorship was a, a big thing in the fire service at least not in new jersey and, and we're still we don't have like an official i know there's departments that have official like mentorship programs where this person is your mentor and, and they're going to get you through whatever it is or however it works. And I think that's great. And you keep bringing it up. And I feel like it's just our job to be everybody's mentor. You know what I mean? And, and for, for me to be the student and have mentors, you know, I've been fortunate to never have an official one, but there's been some folks that I've latched onto. And, you know, for anyone out there listening, whatever it is you want to do, whether it be business, and we haven't even gotten into your business side yet and, and your past side that we talked that we were going to talk about, but you need those mentors to help you get level up almost, I guess, is the easiest way to do it. Because on your own, it's just not going to happen. I agree. So so where you you have an interesting history with how you got to the fire service, um, yeah. that's kind of taking you into your business trauma pack which I think is, is pretty interesting as well. So can you give us a little backstory on that now that we spent a half an hour just talking about yeah. daily present and not going into right. even anything about you? You could really not even be a firefighter and no one would know how you got there because we skipped that part. <laughs> sure, sure. No, I, I yeah. Um, so I grew up in Israel. Um, and in Israel, when you uh, start ninth grade in high school, you basically get the first week of school is all these speakers come in and talk to you about your civil like volunteer service that you need to do in high school. So police, um, EMS, Boy Scout, Girl Scout, co-ed, very dangerous, by the way. Um, At the high school, a lot of fun doing that. Oh, yeah. Um, and uh, there's a reason America is smart in many ways and separating boys and girls have was a, is, a, is a smart thing. Um, all these different things. So you can volunteer with blind, you can volunteer, have like a um, uh, work with the seniors and things like that. So I uh, was like intrigued with a lot of things, but um, this whole EMS thing kind of um, drew my attention. I said, you know, I'm, I'll try that. And uh, they basically said, you got to do a two-week EMT course. It's every day. 
And then if you pass, you, that will be your volunteer time for your high school. So I did that. And I was like many probably listening right now, once you get that taste, I was hooked into this whole medical and helping. And that was my hook. And um, it was so intense, the the draw um, that I would basically, we were only allowed to volunteer after school and on the weekends, but I was not really a really good rule follower. And I would like write fake notes. Hey, we have no school today. I was like ditching school to go volunteer. And um, I finally got caught because my mom worked in the ER in one of our trauma centers. And the people I would volunteer with always knew, hey, if we go to this trauma center, I can't, you got to stay outside because your mom's going to catch you. And I know you're ditching. So I finally got caught. I was uh, literally doing like CPR on this guy at a bus stop. And it was like 10 a.m. And my partner ran back to, worked with in twos, ran back to get like um, an airway bag um, from where the ambulance was parked because we were stopped in traffic. So we had to run up. And like this guy passing was my basketball coach. And he's like, oh, for what are you doing? He's like, do you CPR? You want to help? And he obviously told my mom. So I got caught for ditching. But that kind of led to me really falling in love with EMS. And I moved to the States, got my uh, um, paramedic license, went to UCLA for that. And um, well, one of my projects in school, our final project was to write a, a, a paper on a subject in the fire service or EMS that you would want to like educate on. And, and for some reason, it was just natural for me to want to talk about bombings um, since that was a big thing we encountered in Israel. And it was not really as popular here, that response. And our professor, Baxter Larman, you may have heard of him. He speaks a lot still. Um, said, hey, you know, you, you you did a really good project. You should really explore this as you continue your career. So it was always kind of in the back of my head is how do I incorporate, you know, that's what I can bring to the fire service. And the, the you know, the fire chief that hired me 18 years ago literally said that to me in my interview, the final interview where you're getting hired. He's like, look, this is what I've forecast for you and your in your career here in Rancho is I want you to bring that to the table, bring your passion for um, terrorism and, and incorporate that into our response. So talk about leaders in 10 and talk about empowering our youth. So our, not our youth, but our youth in our profession. That's what he did for me. And that just lit a fire. And um, within about two to three years, I was uh, in charge of like implementing programs in my agency, which that whole stem another problem, right? You have a brand new guy starting um, programs in a department that's, you know, um, a, a, a big agency and you have a, a very young guy in the profession running a program. And that's where I started making a lot of mistakes. Um, you know, learning so much about fire service takes um, takes a long time to do change. Politics. Yep. There's politics and everyone has a story and everyone has uh, uh, feelings and, and you got to be aware of how you bring about change and who you get on board and who you're stepping on along the way. So I, I definitely learned my fair share of stepping on toes and being um, irresponsible in that manner and, and learning, okay, if I was to redo this, man, I wish I could tell myself now what, what I know, tell myself then. Right. So that's where I love mentoring our new guys and go, look, you just because you're here two to three years, doesn't mean you can't implement this program. Like, let me help you. And if that's what you're passionate about, go, you know, full steam 
because it's doable. This, this place will, and the fire service will allow you to like have a, a grassroots approach and implement something from small to big, but you just got to like figure out the right path, right? You can't just go straight. There is, is getting the right people on board and maybe you're not the right guy to deliver the message. Maybe it's finding the right person to deliver the message. And if you don't care about taking credit, that's even better. And um, all my success, um, whether it's in the fire service or in, in the business world, um, is because um, I've had great mentors and great people that um, given me opportunities to learn and develop strategy and tactics in the fire service and gear in the fire service that now I can go and, and share with others and, and benefit from that. And, but ultimately help our profession benefit from those strategies and tactics. It's really that team approach is what you're talking about, right? Because you have that young guy who's really passionate in your case, you know, passionate about terrorisms and then preventing further injuries and traumatic injuries. And yeah, you're young, but there's going to be other guys in your department that are into that. And when you go with that team approach of not trying to do it, by yourself. So if you try to do it by yourself, whether you're looking for the credit or you're not, everyone's going to say, he's just doing it for the credit, plain and right. simple. You know, and, and, and especially in the fire service, like you're swimming upstream constantly when it comes to change, whether it is changing the brand of coffee that is drunk in the firehouse or changing your tactics and strategies for, for the uh, fire attack. But right. there's going to be folks that agree with you. And if you do it on a team level, that is going to really be, is going to get you to that next level. And, and I feel like everything that I've ever been able to accomplish that's worth talking about is because of the team, not because of me, you know, in, in any way, shape or form. This episode is brought to you by the Affordable Standpipe Prop. Let's break it down real quick. Steve and the crew at Affordable Drill Towers is doing it again. They've created this fully custom and fabricated standpipe prop to support the fire service. I'm telling you right now, this is a game-changing piece of training equipment. And I wanna hop into it real quick. It is designed with a four-inch manifold of high-strength galvanized Schedule 10 pipe. The cart and manifold are powder-coated red for a durable finish, meaning it's not just a talking piece. It's not something you tuck away on the shelf. This is a training prop that can be wheeled into the classroom and then brought out onto the training ground. And so let's talk about that. In the classroom, there's nothing better than having a hands-on prop in front of the students, in front of the fire companies that are there to learn about standpipe and FBC connections, having that prop in the classroom allows for a great instructional lecture. And then from there, take the standpipe theory and translate it to the training grounds. You could wheel the cart out that's on casters, you wheel it out into the parking lot, and that same training prop that you just used hands-on in the classroom can now be used hands-on on the training ground by pumping into it and flowing out of it. It offers such versatility in its approach. It has a two and a half inch Siamese connection, seven two and a half inch outlets, six of which are standpipe valves, has a water motor gong, sprinkler head with a control valve, and a system pressure gauge. You can also upgrade and put three of the most common field adjustable PRVs. I'm telling you right now, this is a game-changing training prop that needs to be in every fire company or training department across the country. Reach out to Steve and the crew, info at AffordableDrillTowers.com. Ask for a demo, ask for information, or check them out on social media and YouTube. There's plenty of content out there that shows you exactly what the affordable standpipe prop can do for you. This episode's brought to you by Taylor's Tins. 
Taylor and his crew at Taylor's Tins have been manufacturing aluminum helmet fronts since 2017. With over 200,000 tins in the market, they are a leader in the helmet front space. Custom design, one-offs to department orders. They can turn them around within 24 to 48 hours. Customer service is what they pride themselves on, and they provide nothing but top-shelf product and service to their customers. Check them out at taylorstins.com and check out their full line of product offering. They've always been a very strong supporter since day one with the National Fire Radio podcast and platform, and Taylor and his crew have become dear friends of ours, and we appreciate the support. And at checkout... For a little extra bonus, use coupon code NFR sent me. That's NFR sent me for a discount on your order. Exclusions do apply. Anyway, check out taylorstins.com for the latest and greatest offerings from Taylor and his crew. And in the words of Taylor, stop burning up leather. Yeah, you know, and I think one of the best uh, things you can get achieve as an instructor is when you're at your drill, that one that you're, you know, we do an annual drill, two of them a year, biannual. Um, if we're doing a review and I um, I step back sometimes and I just hear all the things that I would want to say and critique are already being said by either other instructors or our own members, that's like the best um, compliment, I think, to someone that's either implemented a program or, you know, was really passionate about being part of that um, because you don't need to say anything. It's the guys already know what needs to be done. And that's how I've been feeling over the last few years is our guys are really good at operational medicine, the stuff we've been preaching for years. And, um, you know, they can go and take a, a company officer class somewhere else and they become the expert just at their class. Cause people are like, Hey, how do you guys do it in, in Rancho? How do you, you know, we get referred to a lot as an Island, even though we're very far from any water because we, we have, I think really good programs and our culture is that hey, we're going to be really good when we get there you know that was kind of a motto one of our chiefs is all i want my leader's intent is that you be really good when you get there i don't care if you want to wear shorts at the firehouse you know on the weekend and, and relax but when it's time to be on that stage you better perform i can't stand the no shorts thing <laughs> like we, we get to wear shorts or unfortunately this summer being I'm on the I'm on the DC car, I don't get to wear shorts. The DC doesn't get to wear shorts, but all the guys do. Um, uh. And this has been that's my complaint for the summer is I've spent more time in pants this summer, and it's only August here <laughs> this yeah, summer. But I have my whole career in the time because we have a time frame we could wear shorts. But I go from day one to day end, except now, and these pants are killing me. But it's oh, the yeah. same thing. Like, what what does it matter what I have on? Like, listen, you have to look appropriate for sure. You know, sure. I'm, I'm the biggest dude to be like, yo, those pants are not blue. That is purple. And it's time for new pants. Like, yep. or they're yep. worn out. Like, like if you go like this, I don't want to see air conditioning type of a thing. Like that's right. whatever it is. It's just even as a firefighter and I'd look at other firefighters and like, God, you want to look like that? You have to look appropriate. But who cares what, what, the uh and how many you know what i mean like whether you're wearing shorts or not because there's a place by me just got shorts and they're so excited there's other places that are like i can't believe you can wear shorts yeah it's 105 <laughs> degrees today like why would not no. wear shorts well, i can go into the shorts debate forever but i think about too where you came from and, and us kind of being around the same age and you know i started out in high school too um at 16 and i remember taking my emt class at 16 and the instructors were like 
if you put a tourniquet on someone, you're gonna, their limb will fall off and it's gonna be your fault. These people used to scream at us a lot in my EMT class. And that was like one of their big soapboxes. And so like, it's like, tourniquets, tourniquets, like you can't do it, you can't do it, you can't do it. And then as I, life changed and we started learning medicine from folks overseas and from folks in the military and what was happening, and you're seeing tourniquets save limbs left and right. And it's right. that evolution of like, dude, I was like, no, I can tell you, I used to be like, no tourniquets ever, never a tourniquet. And now I got one in my car. <laughs> right. You know, I think if we want to be great at being firefighters in uh, one way to do that is truly study the data. And I think you see that a lot with, um, you know, uh, uh, with the actual fire tactics, right? Where we're learning flow path and things like that. So we've changed our tactics. But if you're not responsible to study the data of the medical aspect of what we do, I mean, we I think we're already past the all risk, right? Fire service has to be all risk. And we should want to do more with what we have. Um, so if we're not studying the data for mental health, if we're not studying the data for, of course, fire suppression, but also like you just mentioned, operational medicine, yeah, tourniquet save lives. But also now we're starting to see a shift where everybody's putting tourniquet for everything. You get a um, a simple cut and guys are putting on a tourniquet because we're so comfortable and with tourniquets, we have so many of them, right? So it's truly staying on top of the data. Um, and, you know, I never thought I would be saying like, yeah, we've got to pay attention to data, you know, 20 years ago, but we do. And that's that's where our leadership is 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 great is to dictate to guys is let's keep good data and be on top of what's happening in our profession and with these types of injuries with with everything that we do the data really helps us uh um, guide where we're putting our resources our money and um our training and i I love that and it's funny how you say with tourniquets because that was when i started was like no 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 that's last case don't use that we're doing this now you're gonna lose people's limbs i'll never forget it now you got guys putting uh, tourniquets on their K-12 saws to bring to the roof because where are you going to need a tourniquet at a fire scene? Yeah. If someone's opening the roof, you may need it up at the roof. It's, it's, it's a good place for it. And I love to, like, I don't know if I've actually heard the term operational medicine before. And so it's no secret that I started, I came from EMS. I became a paramedic on my own that I couldn't do on the fire apparatus because New Jersey is different. Yeah. Um, I did that as my, my part-time gig for a while. And I, I really love medicine. And to hear that like operational medicine, that's the part of the medicine that I want to go back to do. I want to do operational medicine, not paperwork medicine. (laughs) Well, I really like that term. So I I, I go around and listen to a lot of different phrases and and a lot of what we do was initially tactical medicine, right? Like you think tactical, then you got to remember, and I know you do, is we need to appeal to our guys. We need to appeal to our politicians, to those that are writing the checks and to the community right so ultimately if you're thinking about medicine in these different environments it's the the actual environment that dictate dictates how much we can treat so the operation of that environment is what changes so to me medicine in a confined space as you mentioned is operational medicine because there's going to be factors that affect how we can provide care in a environment where there's where we can't move around a lot where maybe we have an IDLH, so we have to think about that. Um, uh, a trench rescue, a wildland fire where you're maybe on the side of a cliff. Yeah, there's no no one shooting at you, but the threat is the environment itself. It's falling off the cliff or, um, to me, being on the freeway 
where you still have cars going by and you haven't shut it down and you have a patient who's bleeding out and they're laying in the middle of the road, that is an operational medicine decision of do I put a tourniquet right now on the freeway or do I drag them off the freeway where there's no cars or less chance of a car moving on the freeway? To me, that's exactly what operational medicine is. It's not just someone is with guns in front of us, their SWAT team, and we're in the back, you know, treating the one officer that maybe is shot. That's SWAT medicine. And um, I think we need to embrace operational medicine in the fire service because that's really what we we bring is we're, we're used to learning to work in different environments of of where there's a risk assessment and medicine should have a risk assessment with it too. And that's, we really want to emphasize both in my department and at least what I do with, with my company. Yeah. And that's that safety factor of it. You know, like the FDNY EMS, they have uh, rescue medics, they call them now. And they're mm-hmm. trained in to work in all different IDLHs, like you said, and it's just a different level of that medicine. But that operational medicine to me puts me in that mindset of being on that highway. And now I got to make a decision, right? It's just like my decision to say, are we going to go uh, offensive or defensive on this fire? And all too often in the past in, in EMS trainings that I've been to and just things, it's never even thought about, you know, that decision, go or no go, you know, where it's like, we're going to go because we have to move now. Oh, you can't move them. No, we have to move them. So it's one of those things that like when you think about it operationally, it makes it a more exciting to learn about for sure. And it lets your brain do some more focusing on things. And, and it's just a great term, man. I like to coin it, make a book, write a book if you didn't do it yet. You oh, first. Well, I'm definitely not the first. That's, that's But that's the exactly it, right? Someone share that with me. And that's the, like we started, right? There's no need to hoard information. Like let's share that. Yeah. 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 And now all the fire guys also turn the podcast off because we started talking about medicine and they're like, no, no medicine. I don't do band-aids or any of that stuff. But tourniquets, I'm willing to do a tourniquet for you. Tourniquet for That's yeah, sexy. Maybe we get a, um, uh, like, um, make a tourniquet that has like the, the Nomex on it. That'll be cool. A oh, fire... no, I'm sure it's gotta be out there. Like someone's gotta have a tourniquet case made out of old fire hose or something like that. There you Holster go. your tourniquet to be there. But again, there, it's just such a great tool that like was an original tool. And then everybody got away from using it. But then we realized, hey, we can make this tool better, safer, and we can really use it to do more because it doesn't have to cut off all the circulation or it doesn't, you know, it can, it can be something that's going to really help people as medicine advances. So kind of yeah. cool. And that leads me to get into Trauma Pack, which is your company. And then, you know, you took that passion you had, you wrote a paper brought it to your department kind of. And then at some point you're like, let me get this out with some, some really cool equipment for folks. So how did that come about? Yeah. Yeah. So I, um, as I mentioned earlier, so I kind of got empowered to start like a whole division in my department for um, it kind of took down the approach of the terrorism route and um, had a, a um, little bit of a background in ter- terrorism, obviously being from a country that saw it a lot. And I had a passion to try to, Hey, prepare our guys for when this happens here. Um, so they kind of gave me uh, like a go and and I started doing research on how do we prepare for terrorism and how do we prepare for what I saw was the problem in America at the time was we have these active shooters. So what are we going to do when it hits our community? Because no community is immune. And um, we know when I asked people in the beginning, like, uh, do you think we're safe from active shooters or terrorism in our area? And the result was always like, ah, yeah. Well, if you fast forward to the program I uh, helped create, I was teaching a class on December 2nd, 2015. 
and it was to our animal shelter folks. And at 10 a.m., I was asking, do you guys feel like we're safe from active shooter and terrorism? And they're like, well, yeah. And within seconds, uh, my phone went off and, you know, kind of the other two cops I was teaching with, um, their phones went off. And it was like denial at first, like what? Multiple people shot, like just down the street. Uh, must be gang related, you're thinking. And then you're like, 10 a.m. Gangs are not really up. They're still sleeping. And then we had that terrorist attack down the street from us in San Bernardino. It was the largest at that time terrorist attack since 9-11. We, um, it was when the two um, ISIS-inspired uh, terrorists went into that building at a workplace party. And, On the party, yeah. um, and uh, so I responded there um, within a few minutes of that incident. And I was involved in, in a few roles, um, specifically through my roles with um, our Joint Terrorism Task Force, where I was assigned to at the time. So, um, you know, if you fast forward where that program happened is, you know, here we were, that was kind of the, here's our, you know, picking the fruit from what we planted years earlier, and now we're reaping the benefit of it. But your, your question was how it started. So that's really how it was. We, um, I got a um, kind of got pushed by the department to help create this program. They inspired me. Um, and then it involved a terrorism aspect and involved a mass uh, casualty aspect and then involved kind of an active shooter response. Started um, uh, networking with other people. We had a guy in our department who uh, was a Navy SEAL and he had a lot of operational or tactical knowledge. So we worked closely together and we started kind of building this model that we thought would work. And um, we called it like a rescue model and we wanted data. So we're like, how do we figure out how to treat multiple people in a way that they will survive? So then we have to figure out what's killing people in an active shooter. And we found, you know, these algorithms that the military at the time created um, today is known as March algorithm. We found like, okay, if this is what's killing people, then we have to only treat these things as we go into a building. And we did these time trials in a school with the same amount of patients every time to find if the leapfrog method works best, does the treating, 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 and then extracting behind works best, or just going in, grabbing one, coming out, going in, grabbing. And ultimately what we found was just basically having a team that goes in and treats as fast as they can. And later behind them comes a team that takes them out. So we, we build this policy and I'm reading gems one day and I see this awesome um, uh, article from Reed Smith about Arlington, Virginia, and they have this model called Rescue Task Force. And I'm like, oh my God, he's describing what we're doing. And I've never even met this guy or heard about him, but he's doing the model of treat and, and extract. And I'm like, oh, we tried that. That didn't work. I'm, I'm going to call him. So I email him and we meet one day at, at a conference. We're both lecturing. And I was telling him, hey, I want to go see your lecture. And I, I can't because I'm at the same time. Can we like have coffee and and he was so open to sharing all his information. And then he heard what we do. And I explained the data that we got. He invited me to come speak to his group. Uh, he was the chairman of TECC at the time. And everything kind of exploded from there. I shared what we do with TECC. Um, about a year or two later, I was voted to be on the committee as a, a guidelines member to help write the guidelines for TECC. Um, I've been very involved with that. And that helped uh, kind of get a spot with the NFPA, uh, help write their um, NFPA 3000. I was one of the authors of that to help kind of help write this unified response to um, active violence situations. So 
Uh, it's called ASHER, so Active Shooter Hostile Event Response. Um, NFPA is a, is a great resource, and I always thought it was just firefighters, but it's so much further. So many different people, shooting. yeah. Right, so many like there's so many different facets of what goes on behind that, those couple of numbers that you see. Right, so um, worked on that policy for a few years. Um, but anyways, I was going around the country lecturing so much, and finally our, our fire chief and deputy chief pulled me aside and said, look, you're going all these places, and we can't send you to anyone, not to, uh, to all these anymore. Um, and whenever we say no, you end up going for free because I wanted to help these agencies. I go, hey, can you teach us active shooter? And if my department said no, then I would just say, um, yeah, I'll just do it for free. And um, they said, look, you should start start your own business. You, you know, you're doing all this for free. You might as well, like, you know, your family's to be taken care of. So I started a business. Um, I looked for a name and kind of high threat innovations was what I was thinking. Um, the logo is kind of the mountains in the background of Rancho. And um, the Spartan is, um, if you see our logo, the Spartan is kind of my, where I got a lot of my knowledge was from my buddy who was a Navy, Navy SEAL. And that was his thing. And um, I know that was inspired him. And then the the bat wings is Israel has a, another unit in the military that is um, has a bat wings because they're very quiet. They come in at night. It's the Israeli commando. So I kind of combined those two. And then as we started teaching, there was a demand for gear. And I was always hesitant about selling gear because you kind of feel like you're you got to go with one, you know, medical gear. And I didn't want to be tied to that. So I just made a decision that if I was to ever do gear, which we do now, it would only be gear that I use and truly believe in. And that's like our thing is we even run on everything we sell this. We would never put any gear that I wouldn't use on my own family. And that's why we work with a ton of medical manufacturers because I tell them, look, I'm not going to ever sign a document that says I'm only going to sell your tourniquet because your tourniquet works maybe great for this um, type of audience and for this type of subset in our society, maybe people that uh, are used to this um, medical device, this works better for them. So we custom build all our, our trauma packs with um, all, all the different medical equipment. So we could have a quick clot. We can have a hemostatic from this company, a hemostatic from that company, tourniquet from here, tourniquet from there. And then our what we truly make is the bags. And we wanted to make bags that are very innovative, that work for for me in the fire service as a uh, a person that delivers care still every day um and that's where i use my knowledge from what we do and we use our gear um at areas that i work in and our whole area around here uses our gear we have now we're sold in all around the world so we have places um in australia to france england um, all the way to Ukraine, we've been able to help a lot with without those um, all those civilians that are fighting. We've sent uh, over a thousand trauma kits already over there that we've partnered with with um, non government agencies that want to look for donations. So we've we've donated a lot over there to ultimately save lives. And our, our model is to let's save lives together, and that's what we want to do in the in the uh, fire service as first responders, but also for civilians that are are trained. And I want to be empowered to to help. So that's it, a little your thing knowledge about it. is so amazing because I'm just listening to you and I'm writing things down and I'm trying to think of all the things and your 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 knowledge is all coming back to that to help others in the best way possible, right? Because a couple of EMTs on a fire engine need a kit that can do this. A couple of two paramedics and a medic truck need a kit that can do this. 
a teacher in a classroom needs a kit that can do this. And when you put that user slash end user first, you're going to be able to research and make that kit just for them. And I think it, it and it's something I, I did not know about you. And I know why the Modus guys were like, Pip, you got to talk to this dude, because that's it. That's what you just said, that passion that we come back to, too. Aggressively passionate. I mean, you were aggressively passionate talking about making med kits for the end user, which is just amazing. And it is like my EMS mind is geeking out. So I can't get too EMS geeky now because everyone will make fun of me. Oh, it's, I mean, it's really, and that's why I love being in an all risk agency, right? And one thing I learned with NFPA 3000 is we have to look at it as a chain of survival. And just like for, for the fire service, right? If we want to save people uh, from house fires, it starts in that tour in the school for first graders when you teach them about sleeping with their door closed to buy them time. And if they hear it from first grade and second grade and third grade, that helps our job when we go in in an aggressive fire attack and we see a door that's closed, we know to open and look because we know that we taught them that when they were in first grade. So we have these chains of survival and we look at a whole community approach to the fire service. But to me, it's a whole community approach in, in operational medicine. If if I can teach a, a teacher or a student at a school how to put a tourniquet, that will buy us time that if we when we get there with the fire service, and try to finish that tourniquet on or put maybe give him a drug like TXA and get him to the hospital so a surgeon can operate on him in a in you know less than 30 minutes from time of injury. The only way to successfully reach the, the highest potential of survivors is if we teach every part of that chain of survival. And that includes the people that are always there when disaster strikes, which is the civilians. They're the first ones on scene. So if we have big egos that we don't want to teach people about fire safety or about how to apply, you know, trauma care to civilians, then we're missing out on truly saving lives. It's way more than just dial 911, you know, and I think too, that's kind of like the Israeli theory of medicine in a way. And emergency medicine is empowering the people to help because again, like you said, dealt with bombings before, sort of before we did, I guess, and they were more of a common occurrence. There's not enough emergency responders. You know, we need as much help as we can get um, and it's too, it's just like when you pull up on a scene and there's someone trying to do something, thank you very much for your help. We've, we're here now. We'll take this. You know what I mean? When there's one patient, um, we've had a couple multiple shootings where, where I am and the guys that were there, I have not been on one, but we're like, I was so grateful. There were some people there holding pressure on this wound because I couldn't help everyone that needed my help when there's only three of me and two arms, you know? Right. And, and I think that's one of the big bridges too, just like the asking for help, not just with the community, but if if you look at agencies or if someone's listening now and you're in an agency where your relationship maybe with your law enforcement isn't great, we have plenty of that in our country where fire and police don't get along great. That is one of those like common denominators where we um, can find a way to bridge that gap. And because they know they want us working on their guys if they're injured and we know we want them to protect us if we need to be protected. But if we can help empower them to provide care, they can first help themselves, they can help their partner. But also when we're on a scene where there's, and we do this on our drills, active shooter drills, is if there's no longer a potential threat, we have them lower their weapons and get down and help us working. And it gets everybody on the same page um, as as far as providing care. And, and it's, you know, it's, it's a great thing that we can help empower our law enforcement partners to be able to be uh, 
good at that and not be afraid. Oh, they're going to take over our jobs. That's not it. It's, it's working truly together for a common cause. Yeah. And that, that common cause is to help the public. And when, again, when you have this, I know in recounting a story from, I think, I think they had nine victims at a shooting. Uh, I don't, I can't tell. I'm not going to, I'm going to mess up the exact one, but we carried two tourniquets on the engine. And those two tourniquets were gone quite rapidly, right? And they were like, thank God, you know, most of the cops are carrying a tourniquet. Not that the cops could put on the tourniquet because they had cop type stuff to do, but it was like, I need a tourniquet. And he's the one lieutenant that was working was like, dude, I was like a wide receiver. Like they were just tossing tourniquets. Like you get a tourniquet and you get a tourniquet, but it's because we had so many there. And it doesn't make sense for an engine company where I work to carry nine tourniquets in the kit anywhere. You know, we don't... It's just not feasible for us. But when there's nine cops and each cop has a tourniquet, there you go. Um, And it's those things that, again, working together and understanding this landscape of, like you said, had you asked me, is this going to happen in my area a long time ago? I'd be like, nah, we're good. And now I get, you get a notification. um, And especially too, I don't, I live about 30 minutes in the, in the country in New Jersey is a good way to put it. And when I get the notification that my kids did an active shooter drill at school, I feel good because I know they're getting training. If that moment ever occurred, it's not going to be like, we have no clue what to do. At least they're doing something just like a fire drill would be right. Right. Absolutely. And the kids are some of the the best ones to carry that message, especially kids of first responders. Um, my daughter started kind of listening to what I'm doing when she was six and she's like, loving it now and she wants to get in the medical profession but um i have a video of her that uh, when she was six she was putting on a tourniquet on her sister and i still show it in my classes that teach the community because there's that little bit of intimidation of like oh we we don't want to teach the kids this and this seems over my head well i go look if a six-year-old can put this tourniquet on um and now she's 14 and she's like helping me in the classes so it's kind of funny um but then you should all feel comfortable doing it and you know we've taught um, so I teach a lot on my own, um, not just through the department, but for like uh, other schools that hire us, or um, it could be a Girl Scouts, it could be a business, um, it could be um, like a, any, any type. We even do obviously yeah. police and fire. But what you see is that the groups that are taking these classes are younger and younger, and also older and older, um, because it really ranges that everybody should be able to know how to do these things. And really the amount of stuff you need to learn to treat preventable causes of death is very small. We're not teaching them how to fix fractures. It's not a first aid class. It's truly a stop the bleed, but all encompassing, right? So it's not just tourniquets, but it's wound packing, it's chest seals, it's airway, it's mindset of, hey, maybe I should put them on a on a table that has wheels or on a chair that has wheels and roll them to the front of the building and not just wait here for someone to come in in 20, 30 minutes. That's such a different, it's again, such a different aspect of things. Like, don't wait for me to come to you, throw them on some wheels and bring them to me. Cause if they're closer to the ambulance, it just means I'm going to be there sooner than not, you know, right. and it's those types of simple things. And even, you know, again, with my kids and too, and, and I've shown them how to use the tourniquets because what if I need it? You know what I mean? Like, I, I don't want to be telling you, like, if we're out hiking, we throw a little med kit in the bag and they know how to use the basic stuff like and the tourniquet. But it's like, I don't want to have to be the first time me being like, put this tourniquet right here because I fell and my arm is half hanging off. It's going to be bad enough as it goes. 
right. if that's the case. Maybe if they have a little bit of knowledge for it ahead of time, they'll be able to to get it on me when when it when it counts. I guess is a good way to put it. So, yeah. So yeah, honestly, uh, having the um, the ability to start a company was a blessing, and you know I'm very appreciative that I was encouraged to do that, and that's where I love the whole. It was like a, opening a whole new career while still trying to manage my normal 56 hour work week. I was doing a lot of overtime. I was one of those guys um, before I started the business. So now I don't do much overtime. I just focus on being really good when I'm at work and being super engaged. And I feel like I have more to give actually when I'm there only my 56 hours a week. So, um, and then balancing having a family and um, running a business. That's, that's a whole podcast in its own right but that's part nine i think of our podcast talk together and that's if we open up a podcast (laughs) i think if you just always stay focused on why you're doing what you're doing and like be in that moment right like if if i'm going to answer this email right now is it going to be as important as spending time with my kids who are going to go to bed in an hour i'm really learning how to balance that you know i didn't have the mental capacity to do that 20 years ago and uh so that's the stuff i i love sharing with other younger entrepreneurs or people in the fire service trying to start, you know, a side business and is, is really like, look, pace yourself, do something because you're passionate about it and, and find your why and what, what makes you move, what makes you go, yeah, I want to do that. I want to spend my time doing that. And, you know, it's a grind, right? I haven't really had a, a break in a long time. And um, so it's kids just even went back you had a break, yesterday. A break. Even when you have a break, it's not a break. Right? No. Right. Or it's too short of a break where it's like, look, I'm going on vacation with my family. I'm tuning out. And you need to do those things, right? You need to oh. tune out for a little bit. And then you get right back into it and your work is doubled because of that break that felt great. But now you're back on the catch-up game to to go from there, you know? And it's funny, you just were, I cut you off, but your kids went back to school. I still have yeah. a month till my kids go back to school. So our, our- I, that's where we're, amongst many other things we're getting wrong in California. I don't get that. We're like, but not even, uh, yeah, first week of August and we're already back in school. And uh, it always makes me uh, annoyed because I'm like, gosh, we should have a whole another month. Hey, go back in September. I don't I don't understand. I'm I'm happy with the way we do things because my kids go later into June and people are like, oh, your kids are still there. But now your kids are starting and I still have all of August. Which right. is yeah, I'd rather the way you guys do it is good for <laughs> yeah. sure. You better keep that quiet in California. Man. Yeah. And people people will throw you off the coast if you say that. Yes. Yeah. Well, we're, um, we used to have just a fire season that was a few months long and now it's become more of a year round, but everyone always knows if you're married to a firefighter, don't plan anything pretty much between like August, September to November, because we're going to be gone. And I think three years ago, I was gone 53 or 56 days in a row on strike teams. And that's um, a foreign concept to us East coasters. We keep it quiet over here. <laughs> Yeah, that's a different that's a different beast. So luckily now I'm on a truck and uh not a lot of strike teams trucks go on. So we stay in the city. So unless it's a mutual aid for a fire, but no strike teams for now. So yeah, that's a whole a whole different world. I'm glad glad I don't have to get into that one. But we are reaching that hour time cap that I like to keep these things at. And and your time is valuable because I'm sure you have eight million other things that you got to be doing today. So um, where can everybody find you online? Cause you got a lot to share and, and you're, I've looked at all your products and they look pretty, pretty epic to me. So let's throw those names out there now for us. Where, where we yeah, so our, our, um, on Instagram is our social, kind of our main social media. And that's at uh, trauma pack, a P A K for the pack part. 
And then our website is www.traumapack.com. And um, we, we, you know, we really uh, pride ourselves on trying to put videos out for like tips and tricks and also just to showcase um, uh, our products, obviously. So um, yeah, we don't really, we have a few stores that keep our stuff. It's nice to always see um, the stores that pick us up end up doing really well. And some of the stuff that they sell more than us that we do on our website. So it's neat to see that, but we uh, we're really kind of a word of mouth and uh, our education. We go all over the country teaching operational medicine, specifically though, the kind of that, those warm zone models. So we teach um, for police and fire, how to work together um, and to do either all four of the warm zone options or rescue task forces, kind of the most popular one that people bring us in for. Um, and then we do a lot of community stuff, community training, uh, and that's a lot of it is mostly in California. Um, but yeah, we'll, we customize gear. Um, we can kind of make anything people want as far as the actual bag. The options we have are great. And then the medical contents inside, we can really customize too. So we love doing it because we see the results and uh, we do offer a free uh, five-year replacement of all the gear. We wanted to, people to be able to use it and not be worried about restocking it. So um, this is not a make rich thing for us and uh, a lot of times I tell customers and people that we talk an hour on the phone about programs I go look whether you go with us or someone else it doesn't matter I just want you guys to for the same reason I was doing it for free in the beginning until I was talked into opening a company is we just want guys to be prepared and you know serve their community serve their people and get their people home safe but be able to provide the same thing I've been passionate about since I was 14 so uh, you know, we'll we'll help anybody that wants to learn how to do those those things with the medicine. And if you like our gear, we'll we'll be glad to to talk about that too. Yeah, it's also again, your passion just comes out for this. You know what I mean? And, and we talked about it before, and we talked about it before even the episode. And I was like, we need to stop having this phone conversation because you're gonna get some people into some things on this podcast that they're like, never really thought about that, but I want to be into it now, or I want to learn more about it. You know, and the, the rescue task force concept is still. I don't want to say it's fairly new, but it's fairly new compared to a lot of what we it is we're out there doing. And more and more people are picking it up and it's only to help others and to keep us as safe as we can. So, you know, having that gear and having that knowledge is is clutch, man. I love it. Yeah, oh, definitely. And we're re relearning a lot. There's st stuff we're teaching now with Rescue Task Force that we didn't used to teach because we see the data and... um that's it, it too, and that is such a data-driven thing, Rescue Task Force. We're never going to end this podcast. But Rescue Task Force, because when you see when we have one of these events, you know, everyone wants to know the why it happened. And everybody wants to know how it happened. And then people want to see who they can hold accountable for whatever reason. But that is all providing this valuable data and this valuable way to move forward. And we're seeing as horrible as these events are, I feel like we are, we're hearing less probably about the successful rescues that were made because it's mm -hmm. just not what gets you the headlines. But we know from the backside of it on the EMS side and, and paying attention to things that we're saving more lives. You know, we're able to protect more people. We're able to get them out of harm faster and in better ways because of people like you and the classes you're teaching. Yeah. And if I can have one thing that I think is super valuable for a rescue task force, wherever you guys are doing there's this study that showed that if someone has got a penetrating trauma and is truly got a low blood pressure because they bled out, if they don't get to surgery or get blood in 30 minutes, their chance of survival is zero 
in within 30 days. They're going to die either in the next few minutes or up to a month from dying from their injuries. So we took that uh, data and we changed how we transport from the scenes. So we used to go from like the CCP to the um, like the warm zone where there's a medical unit. We're not trying to transport. And I urge your folks that are listening to transport from the CCP to the hospital. That's where you're going to save more lives is buying that time from transporting from the warm zone to the hospital. That's a huge uh, change that we've done. It's kind of different than normal ICS or NIMS if you're using that, but it's really transporting from the CCP to the hospital is one of the biggest changes we've done in here in SoCal. And I think that will save a ton of lives. And that's, if you, do you want more information, you can, anyone can contact me about that, how we're doing that on He's the ICS. He's got the data to back it up. I'm sure of it. But that, again, those are things that you're learning over time, you know, and it's even, <laughs> never going to end podcast. I remember being a medic and we were learning how to give blood. And I'm like, who gives blood product in New Jersey? We don't want to carry that on a medic truck. And we have a, it was the physician response unit was starting and they were going to be the ones to do it. But I'm like, wait, medics can give blood product. Like we can do that. And I've never done it, but it's just one of those things that like now you kind of have that. And if you have the product on hand, you're able to, to do that to save more lives. Cause that's what this all comes down to is, is saving more lives. So Love it, man. Love the information. This has been educational and rewarding and all that for sure. Again, thanks again for having me. I appreciate the time. Nah, man, but you can't run away. You got to answer the size up 10 real quick. Oh, then okay. You can, then you can run away, man. And we, we're a little over, but that's okay. So here we go. 10 questions, kind of okay. rapid fire. We'll have some fun with them. Beach or mountains? Oh, um, beach. Night out or night in? Night in. A good book or a good movie? I always fall asleep to books, so it's got to be a good movie. Fall asleep to books. That's I'm all my kids always tell me I'm tired, and they'd say I fall asleep to movies too because I'm always exhausted. But I like a good movie. Nice cross country road trip. Who's your co pilot gonna be? Oh, my wife. So oh, I yeah. don't know if you're gonna pick your daughter or not. So it's a, that one's always a rough one. Well, people... the kids are in the back arguing, but it's <laughs> I. She's the co pilot. My wife, yeah, she's she's my rock. Love it. Do you make your bed every day? No. Oh, I'm being honest, right? I I work. Okay, let's put this. I work. I do because you kind of <laughs> you kind of have to. You're forced into that. But my uh, my wife gets lets me get away with a lot here at home. Nice. She and she is really the best. All right, one million dollars that the size of podcast does not have right now, or go back to 18 years old with a redo. Um, no, I would I would go back and do some things a little differently so I can contribute more. Nice, nice, nice. Highways or back roads? Back roads. A bucket list place to visit? Um, I've always thought New Zealand would be pretty cool. It's on my list for sure there. Yeah. Football or football? Uh, wow, that's a tough one because I grew up on the soccer one. Um, <laughs> oof. I would say soccer. Yeah. It's not a bad, like everyone that picks soccer or football is like, like they're like, uh, it's okay to say that. Like, I think it, it's, it's, it's a great sport, man. It's a beautiful game. Yes. <laughs> All right. Last one. It's the, it's the hardest, the best advice you could give to your younger self. <clears throat> Be humble and slow down and appreciate what you have around you. Love it, man. Love it. Love it. And you are one of the most humble dudes I've had the 
the privilege to interview. I can tell just from our conversation here over the past hour. So I can't thank you enough for coming on. You know, everybody check out Trauma Pack, check out their Instagram because the quick video tips are really cool that they're putting out there because you just never know when you're going to need the services that they provide. So, oh, I want to thank you again. I want to thank our friends at Modus Fire for introducing us. Those guys are awesome up there and their products are awesome. If you're listening, I'll throw in a plug for them as well. Absolutely. Awesome, man. And thanks again to everybody for listening. And this has been the Size Up episode 32. We will talk to you guys next week. 